Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Our program is a weekly show about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On most shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official when we're lucky enough to uh, enroll one of them to come on the show. Sometimes I host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, we've talked about the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York. We've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about the city's LGBT community and the history of the gay rights movement here. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. They've been in New York for 201 years, believe it or not. We've covered the history of punk and opera in the city, and we've explored the city's great train stations and even some of our bridges. In the future, we'll journey to our parks, the subway, and even some of our more interesting cemeteries. That's coming up in March. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple. It's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are some other services, some of which I don't even know about, but they're out there. Tonight, we're taking a trip to the upper part of Manhattan, where we're visiting a neighborhood with a fascinating history and a great current vibe. I'm speaking about Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill. Uh, actually, Sugar Hill's in Hamilton Heights for the uninitiated. It's in the northeast corner, right uh, next to uh, Lower Jackie Robinson Park. Our first guest is a, someone who's turning out to be a regular on Rediscovering New York, Kevin Draper. Kevin is a sought-after New York City historian, and he's a co-founder of New York Historical Tours. He's an impassioned native New Yorker. He actively brings to life the incredible and inspiring stories that have made New York the most exciting and influential city in the world, and I think everyone in the studio <laughs> would agree with that. For over 10 years, Kevin has provided top-rated first-class tours and New York experiences to locals and visitors from all over the globe. His dynamic knowledge, professionalism, and gift for storytelling have awarded him consistent five-star reviews. TripAdvisor Certificate of, of Excellence year after year and won the accolades of the most discriminating clientele. Kevin has led historical talks and lectures for top universities and Fortune 500 companies and is a respected historical consultant for major media and publications including CBS, ABC, Bloomberg, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. And indeed, we're going to talk a little bit about some of Kevin's work tonight. Kevin, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Yes, thank you for having me back. You're a native New Yorker. Where did you grow up? What part of the metropolitan area? So I grew up in Long Island originally um, through grammar school, junior high, and high school, but uh, would spend quite a bit of time coming into the city with my family, But uh, and that's where my passion for the city started, coming in on those trips. This place always seemed like Oz to me. <laughs> uh, Oz of the Emerald City. Oh, Emerald, <laughs> Emerald City, City, actually, yes, it's Oz. On the subway, <laughs> taking the Long Island Railroad, one of the two. Yeah. How did you get into the business or into the passion of illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers about our neighborhoods and about our amazing history? So it was literally a passion since grammar school. I mean, the first adult books I read were about New York City. So it was always a passion all throughout school, through college. I did uh, major in history, business. Had a completely different career path, though, and by the time I was in like my 30s, you know, I, I was always giving tours and talking to people about the history of New York City. People would always say, oh, you should do something like that for a living. You should be like a New York City historian. But like with any passion, people say, wow, you can make money doing something you enjoy. Is that really possible? So we finally decided to actually go try to do it and started a tour company and then started doing consulting work and became an historian. And that's what I'm doing today. Speaking of history, uh, oh, one thing, though, uh, that uh, I really enjoy is when I do have historians on the show uh, to hear all of your stories, and you're all passionate about this. I, I studied history in college and thought maybe I'll do it professionally, but never ended up doing it. But now we get to live a little bit vicariously through, through you and some of your colleagues' works. Um, Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill, 
people are always in intrigued by colonial history, but I always like to focus also, a start, on the history of the people who were living here before Europeans came. Um, were, there native living, were there native Lenape people living on this part of the island before the Dutch came? Yeah, they were. I mean, as the years go by, more and more research is being done. One thing with the Lenape tribe and all the other Indian tribes in the area, you know, they were constantly moving. It was depending on the time of year, the weather. Um, so they would never really stay in one spot. It's one of the things that's becomes difficult in later on in history with the idea of buying or selling land because they were constantly moving. But, but to answer that question, yes, they would have been up in that area also from time to time. What happened when the Dutch came to this part, uh, when the Dutch came to what became Manhattan? Was there any notable history here during the Dutch period? Well, yes, actually, because if you were the two main places on Matahatter Island, which is what the Lenape called it, meaning Island of Many Hills, that's where we get the name Manhattan from, the Dutch settled <clears throat> Lower Manhattan, which became New Amsterdam. That's where the famous wall was built. So everything south of Wall Street was New Amsterdam. They had another settlement further up, which was named after a town in the Netherlands, Harlem. So Harlem's obviously a pretty big place, but if you look at where Hamilton Heights is, I mean, that was for a while considered, and it still really is kind of a part of Harlem. So those are the two main areas where they would have been, south of Wall Street and this area of Harlem, Harlem Heights, and Sugar Hill today. So, of course, it would have been rural, but there would have been a, a village not far from where Hamilton Heights is. Right. And that would have <clears throat> remained pretty rural. What Was there any notable history on this part of the island during, during the American Revolution? It's actually one of the more important battles that took place during the entire war. The first war after the, uh, the first battle after the Declaration of Independence of July of 1776 took place in Brooklyn. That was the first actual major battle of the war. It was actually the largest battle of the war, which Washington lost almost immediately, was in retreat, had a retreat back to Manhattan, and basically retreated all the way up to basically where Harlem Heights is today. Um, Wasn't there a battle, a battle of Harlem Heights? Well, and that what happened was when he got there, a lot of the troops were starting to leave because the idea was they had gotten beaten so bad in Brooklyn, a lot of people were abandoning and leaving. And Washington really felt that all this could fall apart after, after what happened in Brooklyn. So what he had to do was, was rally the troops to do essentially a counteroffensive. So when the British were coming up Manhattan Island chasing Washington, which, by the way, they were actually blowing foxhorns, chasing them up Manhattan, which was a, one of the ways that they kind of rallied our troops because they got so angered at that because there was kind of like real slap in the face. They were actually blowing foxhorns. They mounted a counteroffensive, which was known as the Battle of Harlem, and they were actually pushed basically from where Harlem Heights is and where Columbia University is today. From that area, that's where the battle took place. They pushed the British all the way back to basically where Central Park is today. They were stunned. They, were, they kind of uh, had to regroup themselves, and then Washington was able to get out of New York City. But it showed the British that mm, we could fight back, and it actually gave because it was considered the first battle that we won, that was a rallying cry for the rest of the war that we could win a battle. So it really is that important, the fact that we were... And it, by the way, that, they found out about that back in England and in France that we won that battle. That was the first time that the French actually thought, hmm, maybe there's a possibility. So that's why that battle in that area is so important, because it's considered the first victory of the war. Oh, wow. When did the French come into the war in our favor? I, I don't... Seventeen. Well, I mean, technically, if you're talking about giving money and weapons yeah. and, and people coming up. The, it was from the very beginning. Um, really, when they came in full force would have been 17, around 1780, because that's when they actually sent their Navy over. Um, so technically, from the very beginning, but, you know, again, they were supplying money and weapons the whole way through. But they never really would have kept that going and never would have sent troops if we didn't win that Battle of Harlem. Well, we're, in a minute, we're going to get to uh, the very famous American after whom the neighborhood is named. Mm -hmm. um, how did the area change at all from the time the British evacuated uh, New York in 1783 till when uh, our famous founder, uh, one of our famous founders, uh, built his, his, his house? Everything in that area um, was basically, you would think of it like upstate New York today. It was all the country where if somebody had a home, you would have, you know, 15, 20, 50 acres of land. So basically, after that battle, there was just basically some random estates, including if you went further south, Gracie Mansion, which is where the mayor lives today. That was an estate. There was nothing on the Upper East Side. So all of that land from the Upper East Side, where Central Park is today, there was no park. 
all of that was rural. So after the British left, it stayed that way. That was the place that you would build a country home, basically. And Hamilton bought uh, quite a, a, a good amount of property up in, this, up, in the, up in the area. He had about almost 35 acres, anywhere between 33 and 35 acres, which in Manhattan terms, that's massive. I mean, that's, it's one of the few neighborhoods when you give it a name like Hamilton Heights, it really is because that, all that land up there, that was his, 35 acres. When did he build uh, his home, which you, is actually still there and you can see which we'll talk about they started, he started building it in the early 1800, um, and he only actually lived there for two years. So while they were building it, like 1801, basically, is when he started to build it, he actually spent time up there. I guess you would call it almost camping, the way we would do today, um, and officially moved in in 1802 and only lived there for two years because then he was killed in a duel. But the family stayed for many, many years after that. So, well, so, since we're talking about Hamilton, one of the things I've, I've wondered, which I don't know, is... Uh, uh, by the time the House went up, Hamilton had been out of government office in a while. He, uh, of course, when Jefferson was elected, he would not have been in government. And I think he also left the being Secretary of the Treasury sometimes during the Adams administration. Mm-hmm. So he came back to New York. What would his what was his life like in in the city when he, he when he, uh, when, he, when he built that house? Pretty much went back to practicing law, which, by the way, even today takes two to three years to pass the bar. He did it in six months. He wasn't just a regular lawyer. He's considered the, the top, one of the top lawyers in the country. And they call him the father of modern law because a lot of what we have today was because of him, what, the groundwork he laid. And there's actually been books written about that. So he went back to his, his practice, basically. He went back to his law practice and tried to get his financial um, situation in order. How long did Hamilton actually get to enjoy the Grange before he was uh, shot by Burr in that duel, that famous duel? So he had two years there, and this is something that me and fellow uh, Hamiltonians will say that when you read— You're a Hamiltonian, not a Jeffersonian? No, well, both. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to American history, I love all of it, but, and all the founding fathers in certain ways. But meaning that if you really look at his letters and what he was up to, this might have been one of the happiest moments of his life because— he was really a family man, and he cared much about his family. So he was kind of forced not doing a million things like he was doing before. He's just practicing law, living in his first house he owned, by the way. He never owned anything before that. So he rented everything, every other place he Always lived Always rented. Ah, okay. You know, almost like living out of a suitcase, because you had the capital, was in New York for a year, then they went to Philly, and then he came back to New York. He, oh, he never, ever owned anything in his life. So this is the first house he actually owned, built from scratch, Helped with the design, like in other words, he was pointing out to the architect what he wanted. So this was truly his home, and it was probably the two of the happiest layers of his life in terms of family. Mm. The house is is actually on at the third site. Uh, originally, it was a little bit north and a little bit west of where it is. Um, when did the house? Um, in fact, the house was slated to be. I was reading the house was slated to be demolished. It was condemned at the time that the grid That's was, was. Was, was moving yeah, up there. It was literally in the way of a road, yes. How did it get saved? How do we still have it? It was mainly the church that kind of stepped in to help and other preservationists. They didn't call them that back then, but there were people that looked at certain places like this and thought they should be saved. And they really, they put it on rollers, like logs, basically, and rolled it over to the church property where it stayed for, you know, another 80 years or whatever, even more, maybe almost 100 years. Um, so that's how it was saved. It was local people that wanted to save it. The church got involved to offer the site to put it. Um, but yeah, it was going to be demolished just to make way for the road. Hmm. And then St. Luke's Episcopal Church was actually built next to it afterward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have actually have a personal recollection. I know that it was, it was rolled up Convent Avenue two blocks. I remember. I don't know what I was doing up there, but I was on Convent Avenue, and I saw this house being wheeled mm-hmm. <laughs> on, 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 a, on a platform yeah. south a couple of blocks mm-hmm. to its current place, which is on 141st Street and Hamilton Place, appropriately enough. Or Hamilton Terrace, sorry. Yep, and it's technically on, still on the land that he owned. Oh, wow. So that park that it's in now, that was still part of his property. And they put it there mainly because they wanted to give people the sense of what it might have looked like back at that period, you know, the neighborhood. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kevin Draper and about Hamilton Heights and Hamilton's LaGrange. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York and this episode about Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill, or Sugar Hill as I like to call it. Uh, our first guest is historian and director of New York Historical Tours, Kevin Draper. Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about New York Historical Tours? What kind of programs do you have coming up that our listeners might be interested in? So if you look at the website, NewYorkHistoricalTours.com, we actually do pretty much every neighborhood in Manhattan for sure, and then we do all five boroughs. Um, so, you know, your standard tours, Soho, Tribeca, Central Park, everything think of, anything you can think of neighborhood-wise. But we also do a lot of specialty tour, tours. Might as well say this now. Hamilton Founding Fathers. We have a tour all about that. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Gilded, a- Gilded Age tour about the Gilded Age, which there'll be a big show coming up this year. Give a quick plug for that from Julian Fellows, who did uh, Downton Abbey. Brought that to an end on purpose. And they're doing a show called The Gilded Age, which will be all the rage. That's going to be on HBO. Taking, oh, wow. Taking the place for... Uh, Game of Thrones, but the reason I say that is we have a Gilded Age tour that's really good that we've been doing for years, and Jazz Age tour, and a few other tours, Harlem, and stuff. And people can find out about it at? Uh, NewYorkHistoricalTours.com. Uh, all the information, all the tours are listed, and the phone number is there where you can contact actually me directly, and I'm the one who would actually help set up the tour. And in many cases, if asked, I can actually do the tour too. Oh, Great. Well, getting back to Hamilton and getting back to the Grange, what is it like to visit the Grange now? What, what can people expect when they go there? What, what's there for people to see? Well, for one, I mean, the neighborhood's beautiful. I mean, first off, when you get up there, you look at the architecture and the stuff of the buildings all around you. Um, the house itself has been restored uh, to the best of their ability to what it would have looked like. They have some original furniture and some other things in the house that belong to the Hamilton family. Uh, there's like an information center when you go in the lower level. So they have exhibits on Hamilton every day, videos on him. They do lectures there, including myself. I've done lectures there. Um, and then they do tours. It's, it's with the, um, parks department. So it's free, Mm -hmm. um, the national park, I should say. So it's always free. So you can go there for free. All the programs are free and you could do a tour of the house so you can actually see the home where he lived the last two years of his life. You know, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I've, I've been to Gracie Mansion more than a dozen times for, spe- for special events mostly. I've been to the Morris Jamel Mansion, which is the oldest uh, extant building in Manhattan. Um, I've only been in the Grange just passing through on a tour, but not a Grange tour, just to stop in and to uh, test the indoor plumbing as it would. But I really, I, I really got to get my butt there and, and, and see it, especially someone like me who loves New York history. Um, you mentioned the houses. When, when would the area start? When did Hamilton Heights start developing into a, uh, a neighborhood with building and not just farmland? How far, how far back would that have been? I mean, you're looking during basically the Gilded Age, or basically after the Civil War. I mean, the city was always slowly moving further and further north. Basically, developers would, were building middle income and upper middle income and wealthy housing further and further north. So there was a big building boom, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, Bailey from Barnum Bailey Circus had a mansion built there that's still there. So you're looking at 1880s up until the 1920s is when that whole period when there's a big building boom up there. 
and the uh, the construction of, of public transportation must have contributed a lot to that. That's what really did it too. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know they knew that it was coming once the city, a city consolidated in 1898, but they knew it was coming. 1804, you had the subway line going right up there, right through the neighborhood. Um, so that really helped the neighborhood explode because the fact that you could just get on the train and head straight downtown. So yeah, so by by the by 1904 is when the neighborhood really started to boom. And some of the city's most beautiful, some of Manhattan's most beautiful residential buildings are in Hamilton Heights and along Convent Avenue, also along Hamilton Place, and uh, also along St. Nicholas Avenue, too. And they're actually unique. They really are. You come across some houses that don't look any, like anything else. And one of the things I'm struck by, too, is that, you know, Manhattan um, is, Manhattan, the, the, the city of, 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 uh, of hills, uh, there are ridges up there. So when you go uh, uh, on the back of the houses on the east side of Convent Avenue, there's actually a drop to Hamilton Place. And then when you're in the houses on Hamilton Place, there's a big drop to, uh, uh, to St. Nicholas. Um, there also some. I was going to say real quick, architecturally too. For anybody that's into architecture, you've got everything you could possibly imagine mixed in with that too. Every art. And being a, a real estate broker, I've been in a number of those houses, and some of them really are unique. There's a mansion on the former ha- house on the west side of Convent. I think it's on 144th Street. It's set back. It's just it, it's complete. It's not, there's nothing like it, you know, and there's, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of houses like that. There are also a lot of fabulous old apartment buildings, some of them on Convent Avenue, not very, some of them on Convent north of 145th Street. They're not very tall, but uh, they're built like brick you-know-what, except they're not brick. They they're, have granite and marble. They're really, really extraordinary apartment buildings. They, they probably went up right before the First World War, some of them. Mm. Yep. Absolutely, and middle class and upper middle class housing. So they had some really good, arch- some of the best architects, and they were using some of the best materials build them well the first world war comes and the housing is basically built let's talk about the harlem renaissance and it's significant specifically for for sugar hill which literally is in the northeast corner of hamilton heights um how did sugar hill get its name well with the harlem renaissance you have um mostly african americans moving into the neighborhood but from every every conceivable um career path you can possibly imagine doctors lawyers Accountants and, of course, people in show business, um, poets and writers and musicians. Every you know, it's just a big boom happening in, in Harlem. And that was so, in the twenties, beginning in the 20s. in the twenties, yeah, and even a little bit before that, actually. I mean, the nineteen twenties, not the two thousand twenties. No, 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 nineteen no, twenties. No, I mean, there was a real boom in the neighborhood, and some of the wealthier people, um, especially some of the musicians that could afford it could move into that area because you had some of the uh, more expensive homes there. So the idea was it was the sweet life. So it started to get almost like a nickname, which came in the 1920s, of Sugar Hill, the sweet life. It's kind of like you really made it. So it's already a nice neighborhood, but that particular spot was the nicest spot in that whole area. People like W.E. Du Bois uh, lived there, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Duke Ellington, the mm-hmm. Duke, Cab Calloway. Uh, Thurgood Marshall also had his residence in, in Sugar Hill. And also um, Afro-Puerto Rican uh, scholar Arturo Schomburg, after whom the Schomburg Center on Lenox Avenue was named. Uh, and then we have City College, which is an extraordinary institution and a beautiful place. When was City College founded? By the way, for the, uh, City College is in the, uh, it's above St. Nicholas Park in the southwestern part of Hamilton Heights, up on the hill. Yeah, if you're at the Hamilton Grange, you're looking right up, and you can see it right up above. So that whole area, now it's a little bit further south, but when you think of Columbia, when you go along that whole ridge, all the way up to City College is sort of the, um, considered the academic acropolis, because you have all those colleges and universities up there. thing with City College in 1847, when it first was founded, this is one of the first where it was just purely based on merit, and not, you know, not um, how much money you had or what your family or your background was. It was really about merit, and it was open to all, which was one of the first in the country, and it was free at the time. So if you were a man in the beginning. If you were a man, yes. <laughs> I said that is true, yes. Actually, they'd have to work on that, but yes. So that was a big, major breakthrough because, I mean, it was major for not just New York City, but for the country because that's when they really started putting with their mouth, uh, putting the money where their mouth was where the idea of education and an educated populace is important for the rise of America. I mean, they were really thinking that way. So that's But it what, wasn't the first free college. I think, was it Boston and maybe Philadelphia that also had free It might have been colleges? just really before that, yes. Um, but in New York City, it was definitely right. the first. 
And even the money they spent to build a campus, it's a very gothic-looked structures or gothic-looking structures because they really were thinking about um, Cambridge, Oxford, sort of that Ivy League look and feel because it does. They've proved that with studies now today many times where depending on the look of the buildings and the campus, that can actually, you almost, like, even for me, when I walk through those gates and you walk on that campus, you feel like your IQ is going up. Yes. Because there's something about, so it, it's absolutely beautiful and it's something I think 18 acres or whatever. It's, I mean, it's a pretty good sized campus. Um, so that's a real good anchor, I think, for the neighborhood to have students up there and, and faculty and professors and stuff. Is there any notable, uh, I, mean, I mean, the architecture really is beautiful, in, in, and for, for the uninitiated in that neighborhood, you really, if you just plop someone down, you wouldn't think you're in Manhattan. No, and it, no, not at all. What kind of notable architecture did uh, uh, the city decide that would go into the college, especially in the, in, in the days before the turn of the last century? Well, it was basically that, that Gothic um, architecture. There's a, a name for it that's escaping me at this moment. Colli- colli- collegic Gothic, I think was what they call it. Um, but again, if you think of like, if you picture in your mind, like the campus of Oxford or Cambridge, it's very much like that type of stone and look. And City College had the, was known, it had a couple of nicknames, the poor man's Harvard, because anyone, if you were poor, you could go. Yep. And also the Harvard of the proletariat. <laughs> so both nicknames actually, uh, hearken to, to, to Harvard, which I think was the first, uh, school of higher education in the whole country. Harvard. Harvard. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, Many people don't know this, but uh, the, the city's second free college uh, was built in 1870, a college for women that was Hunter. And the city's third public college, which wasn't built until 1930, that was Brooklyn College. So uh, in 1930, there were three, there were only three public universities in New York City. And Hunter allowed women. Yes. <laughs> um, well, as a Vassar graduate, I'm you know, proud of the fact that uh, the, a product of, uh, of, of, of a college that was built to uh, educate the underserved gender, which actually probably had a majority of people, uh, so I, I think 51%. And today CUNY has uh, 20-something campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we can't talk about Hamilton Heights without also talking about the cemetery that, it is, that at, is at its northern end. It's quite an extraordinary place. When was Trinity Church Cemetery and Mausoleum built? Or when was it built? When was it uh, created? You don't really build a cemetery. I don't want to give the actual wrong date on that, but I mean, it would not have been probably late 17 or definitely early 1800s because already Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan um, was already surrounded already by uh, you know buildings and stuff, so they ran out of room real quick, um, mainly for the cemetery. I mean that they they literally needed more room to bury people. A lot of people wanted to actually be buried in Manhattan, including one of our most famous mayors, Ed Koch, who tried to get into Trinity Church downtown. He did everything he could, pulled every string he could, but and they said no. So that's where he is now. Can some can people still be buried there, or do you have to be cremated? Downtown? No, uptown. Um, <clears throat> I think you could still be buried oh, okay. there. I haven't been there in a while. I'd have to double check, but I think you still can. Oh. Because Koch being Jewish, he might not have been cremated. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and there's actually a church on the cemetery grounds. Yes. Church, church of the Transfiguration. Yep. And beautiful views. And it's actually, you know, a lot of you people will think of Woodlawn or uh, other famous cemeteries, but it's worth taking a look up there because there's quite a few wealthy New Yorkers buried up there. So it's quite beautiful. In the minute or so we have left, Kevin, what can you speak to what Hamilton Heights' more recent history has been like? Well, two things. I just want to mention the uh, Audubon Mural Project. I don't know if you're familiar with that, the Audubon Mural Project, which is all over. It's, um, they're actually having murals painted on when you pull down the grates for stores at night or some blank spots on buildings. It's actually done a lot, to, I think, to beautify the neighborhood. John Audubon is buried in... And John Trinity, Audubon yes. is buried there, right, and his home was up there. But So he did the famous painting of the birds. So this is local artists doing these paintings oh. on, on the <clears> sides of buildings and on the, again, we pull down the grates. So that's actually adding a lot of culture to the neighborhood. I think it's bringing a lot of people up there, including myself when I first read about it. I went up because it's fun to kind of go around and try to find all the paintings. So that's something to check out. It's the uh, Audubon Mural Project that's up there. And um, also, I just think in general, the neighborhood, you know, the city seems to be putting money into the neighborhood. Um, I know the subway, subways and streets and just the, some of the light fixtures. I mean, they seem to be putting some money into the neighborhood, which I think is a good thing. 
Well, like many neighborhoods in New York, it's a neighborhood. I'm going to say in transition. That sounds so uh, uh, cliched, but but there are nice things happening and changes in what in Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill on the aesthetic level. Well, we're out of time on our first segment. Our first guest has been Kevin Draper, the director of New York Historical Tours. You can find out about Kevin's tours at NewYorkHistoricalDoors.com. Kevin, thanks for being on Rediscovering New York. Absolutely. Thank you for having me again. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook. We're Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. I know it's a novel name for a Facebook page, but there you have it. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle there is JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. And you can also find out about other shows on Talk Radio by going to TalkRadio.nyc and signing up for our email list there. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, When I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, we have a special guest for the second part of our show on Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill, Biji Barhani. Biji was born in Ethiopia, She was raised in Israel and moved to New York 20 years ago. She's founder of an organization called Bina Cultural Foundation. It's a cultural organization dedicated to the empowerment of the Beta Israel community within the United States. And she's also founder of the annual Sheba Film Festival, a showcase of films portraying Beta Israel life and other aspects of Jewish and African cultures. 
This was the drive behind the creation of Tzion Cafe, an Ethiopian and Mediterranean full restaurant in Harlem, actually in Sugar Hill, in the Sugar Hill part of Harlem. Features a mixture of Ethiopian and other African dishes, I'm getting hungry just saying that, as well as Israeli and other Mediterranean cuisines. It blends food, culture, and music together. Uh, Sion Cafe is on the site of the famous Jimmy's Chicken Shack. It was an old Sugar Hill uh, standby where once Malcolm X and Red Fox worked. I remember Red Fox. Some of our listeners are probably too young to remember him. Tzion has blended artwork and live jazz music with unique and novel Ethiopian-inspired dishes. And a special welcome to B.G. Barhani. Welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you for having me. You're from Ethiopia originally. Ethiopia originally. How old were you when you moved to Israel? Uh, I was seven years old when I uh, emigrated to Israel. But uh, originally, I left Ethiopia when I was four. So we were on the road about three years. Uh, <clears throat> It was 1980. At that point, uh, Ethiopian Jews were not allowed to leave uh, Ethiopia or anybody else. At that time, there was a dictator, Mengistu Haile Mariam, where he didn't allow anybody leaving Ethiopia. So our immediate uh, village, about 300 people, decided that uh, we wanted to emigrate to Israel. And that happened via walking from Ethiopia to Sudan. Uh, in Sudan, we lived for almost three years uh, until we were able to emigrate to Israel. Uh, it was a very difficult journey arriving to wow. Sudan and eventually to, uh, to Israel. But, you know, with the hard, with the belief and faith, uh, we were able to accomplish that uh, mission. So you had to literally walk across the border. Wow. That's right. Wow. We had to escape. I can't imagine the hardships. I, actually, when I was in Israel last, I went to uh, an absorption center uh, where Ethiopian immigrants were, were uh, being um, uh, absorbed into Israel. And some of the stories were incredibly harrowing. I don't know how people did it. but um, So you moved to Israel when you were seven? That's right. And where did you live when you were in Israel? Before, uh... So uh, as you were talking about Observation Center, when uh, the first Aliyah, the immigration of Ethiopian Jewry in 1983, uh, you know, uh, new immigrants usually stay in the Observation Center where they learn to integrate to Israeli society, uh, start learning Hebrew and so forth. Uh, then the first place was Paradis Hana. It's in the north near Hedera. And from there, after a couple of years, you are fully integrated to Israeli society. You moved to a different uh, place where I spent about three, four years in Ashkelon. And from Ashkelon, I basically decided that I wanted to live uh, in a kibbutz. Uh, it was a, a kibbutz in the south and not far from uh, Rafiach and Gaza and, and uh, Sderot. Um, there you basically work uh, in the fields and the kitchen and the dining hall where everybody is eating together. It's, very, it's communal, sharing a cooperative way of living. It was a wonderful experience. And that kind of, you know... Um, Exposed me working the land, uh, picking up carrots, uh, working, uh, milking cows and stuff like that. So that was the opening for the aspect of healthy food, uh, healthy eating and so forth. And like most Israelis, you went into the army when you were 18. That's right. What did you do with the army? Uh, well, in Israel, uh, you, it's mandatory to serve in the army. I served for about two years uh, doing a basic trainings. And like any other Israeli kid that grew up there, I wanted to go and travel as well. So my first encounter with New York was after the army, came to New York and fell in love with the melting pot, the diversity, the different ethnic groups and so forth. Uh, I was on my way to Central America and South America. Uh, did a whole backpack travel for almost a year, uh, walking uh, to Machu Picchu for seven days and doing the Inca Trail, uh, different tribes in the Amazon and Brazil and so forth. But uh, you came back to New York, BJ. <laughs> yes, and I fell in love, as I said, with New York. And uh, after about two years, came back to New York, uh, just trying to see if I can make it here. And gradually, uh, 
you meet uh, good people that guide you in different direction. Uh, work in the diamond business for a couple of years. Oh, what did you do in the diamond business? Uh, designing jewelry and, you know, checking out uh, deep flawless uh, diamond and uh, brilliant cut and so forth. Uh, after that... Why I, did you decide to leave the diamond business? Usually you, I, you don't meet a lot of... I've not met a lot of people who've been... In, I know people in the diamond business, but not pe- people who've been in it and then leave it, especially to go into the business that you went into. and shiny and glittery, but that's not what I really uh, were interested in at that point of time, I basically wanted to form a nonprofit organization where we celebrate and, uh, the diversity within the Jewish world. And that where I formed the Beta Israel of North America Cultural Foundation to educate about the diversity within the Jewish world, especially showcasing the beautiful, uh, beautiful heritage that Ethiopians have to offer for the whole of uh, uh, Jewish world. So that within that, I formed the Sheba Film Festival where we were able to showcase films uh, from the African diaspora uh, and have panel discussion, uh, uh, art exhibition, and to bring a dialogue and understanding that Judaism is diverse and wholesome and there is a lot of groups that need uh, to... to sh- to sh- that we've been showcased and uh, put light on. For example, you know, not many people know of the existence of Jews from uh, Uganda or Jews from Nigeria or South Africa. So that the beauty that we have all to offer and share, beside being an Ethiopian Jew, I wanted to highlight other Jews throughout the African diaspora. And what is the Beta Israel community? Is it specifically Ethiopian Jews or also Jews from other parts of that part uh, of Africa? The term Beta Israel is referred to Ethiopian Jews. Uh, a lot of people used to use the term Falasha, if you heard before, which is... Well, when I was growing up, that's how you that's referred right. to, to Ethiopian Jews as Falasha Jews. Yeah, which is derogatory. Oh, is it? It's a oh, term gosh. I would that's not good. recommend to use. It's a term that the non-Jews refer to the Jews, uh, uh, which is meaning somebody who is exiled doesn't belong to a specific group. So the uh, Beta Israel uh, want to be called either Ethiopian Jewry or Beta Israel. Well, your involvement in the Beta community led you to the creation of Tzion Cafe. By the way, Tzion, when I first saw it, right away, having uh, spoken some Hebrew in my life, Tzion is the Hebrew word for Zion and uh, means Israel. Um, What had you decided to go into your own business? Um, well, beside, you know, beside Zion being beside uh, Zion in, in, in Mount Zion, it's a spiritual place where uh, you can nourish your body and nourish your soul. So doing all these cultural showcases, I wanted to bring something wholesome as well to introduce the diverse and healthy and nutritious cuisine that Ethiopia have to offer. Uh, Within the Ethiopian cuisine is uh, is very diverse. You have the gluten-free aspect of it. You have the vegan. And if you eat meat, chicken, that's all right, too. But it, it's a style that's been there for thousands of years. Uh, the veganism, organic, and gluten-free, which is uh, the F, is an ancient grain that is native to Ethiopia. So I wanted to bring that beautiful aspect of Ethiopian cuisine and showcase it uh, in Harlem where I reside uh, and I've been there for almost the last 20 years. Uh, wow, where in Harlem do you live? You've lived there for 20 years. Uh, I've only lived in Harlem for seven. You, I'm you, you're, right you're a real pioneer compared to me. Five blocks from the cafe. So oh. I'm within walking distance of the business. And did you decide to open your business in Sugar Hill because you live there? Is That's that, right. Uh-huh. Uh, and I wanted to introduce uh, the community for something unique and uh, wholesome, which, you know, in Tion Cafe, we don't offer only food. Uh, we have uh, live music, jazz, to celebrate uh, the history of the venue. We have art exhibition uh, showcasing local artists within the community. And here and there, we do as well film screenings and panel discussion. So it's a whole cultural uh, uh, place where you can experience different things every time you come there. 
Um, right before we take a break, where can people find out about the schedule for uh, your film screenings and also your, your So uh, we mainly, uh, you can go on our website at sioncafe.com uh, or uh, like us on Facebook. We post majority of our events there or Instagram. Uh, so uh, just look for Sion Cafe, T-S-I-O-N-C-A-F-E.com and we'll uh, find out about the different events. Okay, great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with B.G. Barhani, the founder and owner of Tzion Cafe in Sugar Hill. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back to our episode on Rediscovering New York of Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill. And my second guest, B.G. Barhani, who is the founder and owner of Tzion Cafe, which is on St. Nicholas Avenue in Sugar Hill. Um, I've told us a little about the programming at the restaurant, B.G. Um, do you want any interesting information coming up about programming at Bina or the Desheba Film Festival? Yeah, there are uh, quite, uh, there is a few uh, music, Afrobeats, uh, live music coming up. Uh, I believe it's going to be on the 8th. Uh, there are a few films that in, we're working on a selection coming up as well, but that will be posted uh, soon enough. Uh, the thing that you can look out for most likely is uh, we have a new exhibition come uh, as well that is all about love and diversity uh, by uh, f- about five artists that worthwhile coming and checking out. Is that going to be at the cafe? Or, yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When uh, does that exhibition start? Uh, it actually just started about uh, a week ago. Oh. And it's about love, art, culture within uh, celebrating uh, Black History Month. And we're going to have a dialogue with the different artists and live music and so forth. And it's up for the month of February then? For, it's going to be February, March. Oh, yes, good. Okay. For two months. So I have two months to get there and don't have to only wait one but month. But we would like you to come sooner. Okay. No, I definitely will. Just talking to uh, our chief engineer, Sam Leibowitz, about, about uh, uh, both of us going with our spouses to, uh, to Tzion. Is uh, Tzion your first business? Tzion yes, Cafe? it is. Yeah? Is the first business in Harlem. Uh, the reason I, I wanted to open Zion Cafe was basically to introduce uh, the rich cuisine of Ethiopian Jews and Ethiopia in general to the community. And I wanted to uh, bring healthy eating habits, uh, which is, as I said, you have the vegan aspect, gluten-free, and all of that stuff. And beside that, uh, Zion Cafe is not only Ethiopian uh, restaurant, or we harmonize flavors uh, within Ethiopia, Israel, North Africa, and so forth, and a little bit of New York. So our brunch menu will be like uh, uh, caramelized onions, lox, and bagels, uh, or served on injera, uh, going to shakshuka, which is a North African uh, dish, uh, North uh, Tunisia, Morocco, and uh, all of that stuff, and malawak, which is native to Yemen. So it's a whole diverse
diverse array of uh, uh, different type of food, which represents my upbringing, being Ethiopian, being Israeli, and now being New Yorker. Mm. What a melting pot. I mean, what, you know, a mix uh, and, a, and a confluence of, of influences, culture, and also of love. Um, how long has, when did you open Sion? How long has it oh, been? We, we actually, uh, five years. We opened five years ago, uh, 2014, the end of 2014. Uh, it's been uh, quite uh, interesting encountering with a lot of interesting people that want to try uh, Ethiopian Israeli food. Uh, people within the community come and support. Uh, a lot of people read about us from different parts of the country and, and support as well. So, which, which brings us to Sugar Hill, the neighborhood where your business is located. Describe the vibe of Sugar Hill. What is it that you like about it? Uh, Sugar Hill is very vibrant, community diverse, uh, a lot of history to it. You walk around uh, St. Nicholas or Convent Avenue. And you're and on St. Nick in 148? 148 and 149th uh -huh. Street is a whole landmark area, uh, my, uh, the building where we are. Uh, actually, where we are situated right now, 763 St. Nicholas Avenue used to be back in the days, Jimmy's Chicken Shack, back at the time where Malcolm X met Red Fox and working with Charlie Parker while Charlie Parker listening to gr the great pianist Art Tatum. So where, you know, four o'clock in the morning, black and white used to come and hang out uh, and listen to uh, great music. And we are very honored uh, to continue that legacy. That's why we have live music there uh, almost every Friday and Saturday to celebrate that renaissance of back in the days. I go to another, periodically, I'll have to go, I'll have to come to see you and listen to music. I periodically go to uh, uh, another speakeasy type place on 119th Street. It's called Cafe 623, I think. Mm -hmm. They have a couple of jazz nights a week. But um, getting back to, to Zion and, and, and Sugar Hill, what do you feel makes Sugar Hill and Hamilton Heights unique as a neighborhood? Uh, the historical aspect of it, and I would say the type of uh, people, the demographic is very diverse. Uh, Sugar Hill feels like a, a small village. Uh, people know one another. They say hello. And uh, you, I walk down the street. Uh, I know majority, a lot of the people. And it's, it feels very close-knit, uh, vibrant community, diverse world type of ages, upbringing, and economical uh, situations as well. And you've lived in Sugar Hill for 20 years. That's right. And you've seen the neighborhood change in the time you've been there. Yes. How has it changed? Well, I recall back then, you know, uh, there was, it wasn't as diverse. I would say past 90, 90, 90, you take the train, I would say 96th Street, majority of the white people would get off. <laughs> and then you know that going up to 110, 125th Street, you're going to get the seat for sure. But within like five years, 10 years, it gradually, you see the diversity of all type of people that coming up to Harlem. And I think it's beautiful. It's an enriching uh, everybody to learn about another and respect one another about their history and uh, culture. Do you know if most of the customers at Sion actually live in the neighborhood or do they come from other places to, to eat, to listen to your music? Uh, we get customers, uh, I would say our uh, Majority of our customers will be from Sugar Hill, uh, Hamilton Heights, uh, and different part of the world and uh, neighborhoods as well. So it's very diverse. Have you also, I mean, you've lived in Sugar Hill for 20 years, only in the last five years since you opened up Sion. Have you also seen the neighborhood change in that short period of time? I would say, uh, yeah, for the better. Uh, a lot of... Um, well, I hope so. Every place in New York changes for the better. That's what the show is about. We all, uh, celebrate uh, New York and its diversity. I'm kidding. I'm more uh, <laughs> developments and more businesses, which is opportunities for people. And I think it's uh, great to see uh, the growth uh, and development of uh, Harlem. Hmm. I have a little bit of a pointed question, uh, BG. If, as a business owner, is there anything that you struggle with in the neighborhood at all? Uh, I mean, we always want um, to make sure that our tables are full, our restaurant is full, uh, especially, you know, in a situation where we are, uh, we are the only restaurant in St. Nicholas Avenue. Uh, it will be great if more businesses came to St. Nicholas Avenue, which is very convenient location. You have the A train, B, C, D. Uh, and yeah, the subway entrance is right there on 148th and St. Nick. That's right. Yeah. I, just need to, uh, I just need another one or two restaurants or, or, or something like that that 
will create, generate more traffic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone who might be interested in, in opening up a business in Sugar Hill? Um, advice. I would say do your research on your demographic, and uh, you, you will have to have a special niche or uniqueness uh, for whatever business you're opening to attract uh, different type of people. Hmm. Is there anything that surprises you about Sugar Hill, having lived there for 20 years? I know that's kind of a loaded question, but sometimes people, they, they think about it and they go, well, ah, there is something that surprises me about the place I live or, 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 or run my business. Surprises me. I'm not sure. I'm surprised. But <laughs> uh, I told you it was a, uh, you know, it was a question that, that can come out of left field. I like to ask questions like that sometimes um, from my guests. I'm not, let's see, I can't, nothing I can think of, but, um, um, All right. I well, don't know. You have to have an answer to every single question I throw your way. Do you see yourself opening up another business in Sugar Hill or Hamilton Heights? I, I think at this point, uh, we are good uh, with Zion uh, as is. Uh, we want to encourage people to come and visit us. Uh, if the opportunity provide, uh, who knows, maybe we'll open another location. But at this point, we want to be connected to our customers, serve them, be there 100%. Who knows? Oh. Well, thank you. B.G. Bahani, thank you so much for being a guest on Rediscovering New York. I really enjoyed uh, meeting you tonight and getting to know more about your, your fascinating personal history and your journey to New York. And I want to add also that your, your story is like so many people who come to New York who are here, they fall in love with it, they make it their own, they find a particular place that speaks to them, and then they choose to go into a business or a profession that incorporates uh, the wonderful things that they bring here and then become part of this amazing place and our amazing city. Thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, this week's journey has been to Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill. I want to thank our guests, B.G. Barhani and Kevin Draper of New York Historical Tours. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow, my, follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is JeffGoodmanNYC on both those channels. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion and bring our clients the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Talking Alternative. 
you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 